we will pray uh, after a while, but I'm going to bring you a message from the Bible. This one's going to be different than what we usually do on a Wednesday night, but I, I uh, really fe felt led to do this. And, and in the past when I would preach, I, I preached uh, in, under these themes a lot uh, about the second coming of Christ. And, and who's to say that we may enter into a, a, a series of studies on this, but we're going to start out with this tonight. I'm going to give you a lot of information about the return of Christ and then bring a practical application at the end. So we are here in Psalm chapter 110. I'm going to read the whole chapter. There's seven verses. Psalm 110. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning. Thou hast the dew of thy youth. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall wound the heads over many countries. He shall drink of the brook in the way. Therefore shall he lift up the head. And if I had a title to this, I would use that last uh, verse, last line. He shall drink of the brook in the way. And let's pray. Father, as we look at Jesus' return and uh, try to help us to understand some things that are coming very, very soon that we will know and have confidence of the truth out of the Bible, the amazing events that are about to take place. And we ask that you would open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things out of thy law and speak through me, please. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you wouldn't know this about me, but when I was young, I was a fighter. I, had, I got in a lot of fights as a kid. I started very early in life fighting when I was a very young man. I don't talk about it too much, but uh, even as I went to school, then uh, in grade school and then junior high, even into high school, I had to fight a lot. And, and uh, at times it was like a couple of fist fights a week. That's the type of person I was. But it, but it was also because of the situations I was in and the people I was running around and uh, getting involved with. So I was a fighter, and uh, but when I got saved, I saw some things in the Bible about what Christ taught, about the new way, and how to, it really struck me on turning the other cheek. And I said, yes, I'll try to do that. I, I, I did not want to be the old me. I wanted to do everything I could to be like Christ. And I knew I have to give up my brawling way. And then when I became a preacher, I knew that the Bible says a preacher can't be a striker. You cannot hit a man. Or be a brawler. You can't be have a brawling, fighting spirit or attitude uh, about you or you're not qualified to be a preacher. So I studied and, and, and how Christ lived and the mercy that he showed, and I said, I want to be like him. The only time Jesus ever 
struck anyone was when he cleaned out the temple with a whip when they were making money in the house of God. And he ran them off and turned over. He pulled a whip out on them. And uh, why? He said, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. This is something worth fighting over. There are a few things in life worth fighting over. And uh, it is true. The house of God needs to be cleaned up. Uh, I was a fighter. Physically. I don't do that anymore. But I'm still a fighter. Because I want to be a spiritual fighter for the things that matter that God would have me fight for. Paul even said it. He said, I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I kept the faith. He said, I fought the beasts of Ephesus. These were men. They did not go to uh, take it outside and let's fight it out type of thing. And I've had preachers do that. No. He's talking about dealing with people who teach false doctrine and try to circumvent the way. He said the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. We don't do carnal fighting anymore. They're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. It's spiritual. We do a spiritual warfare. He said you cast down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of Christ. And bringing every thought into obedience unto him. That's the type of fighting we need to do. What's that? Within yourself... And then staying true to the faith. So Paul said it was the good fight of faith. He said fight the good fight of faith. He did. And so what are we talking about here? Our fight is against the spirits of darkness. We call him the devil. We call it, uh, we, we fight against the flesh. We fight against pride. We fight against the world. We fight against heresy and false teaching. We fight against philosophies of this world and what the Bible calls in Colossians 2.8, vain deceit. These are things we fight over. And so being holy in this present evil world requires a fighting attitude. I'm not going to succumb to what the world wants me to be. And then I'm going to lay hold on eternal life. That's what he said by fight the good fight of faith and lay hold on eternal life. This is what you grab a hold of. So in 2 Corinthians 10.6, he says, Having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. So before you were saved, you had a certain way about you. And it's the way that you're ashamed of. And you wish you hadn't have done. So God says, well, you can't replace, you cannot change the past. You did it. You can be forgiven of the past. You can, you can remedy the future. And what do you do? You revenge all of your disobedience from the past by obedience in the future. I will double obey now what I singly disobeyed then. You know, people always say, boy, when I, before I came to Christ, I was a really, really bad person. Well, guess what? That means you got to be a double good person to defend, revenge yourself. And the revenge is on yourself, your old life. I think there's a great truth there in Christianity that we're supposed to understand that. I will get revenge on myself. The Bible never says to get revenge on another person. Ever. Ever. For any reason whatsoever. God takes care of us, right? Well, the Lord will take care of us. I get revenge on myself. So you clean yourself up. And the Bible says it's an indignation you have toward yourself with the fear of God. This is the type of fight we have. Now, we learn this from Christ who never harmed another person, even when they were harming him. 
when they were not only threatening him, but they were hurting him greatly. And uh, he went through the worst pain that a man's ever endured, yet he never spoke back, the Bible says. He never defended himself. He never pronounced judgment on them. You know, Jesus didn't say, y'all are going to get it for this. Never did. Now, there's some men in the Bible that did. said, you're going to get it for treating me this way. Jesus did not do that. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. His spirit was purely of reconciliation, remedy in a situation, restoring people back to him and back to God. He was a mediator. His whole purpose was to get us back in God, with God. You know, and we loved anybody that's saved, you know, and love the new life of Christ. You love church. You love the Bible. You love hearing out of the Bible. You love Christianity. So you're going to hear some things tonight. I can prove all this to you later uh, if you want to ask questions about this, but some of these things you probably never heard before, all right? But it's all in the Bible. Jesus Christ is the Lord of heaven. How many times did it say in, ver in chapter 110 of Psalms, they called him the Lord? And, and also said, the Lord said unto my, unto my Lord. Isn't that interesting? Because Jesus is God just as much as the Father is God. And I want you to be excited about him being God. Amen. He rules on a throne in heaven now. Over, he rules all over, and he basically rules the earth, but he's allowed the God of this world to run its course. So what are we going to do? We're going to look at him as our captain, our Lord, our Savior. He's our head. He's the author of our salvation. He's the only victory we have. He's the only hope over the enemy. He's the only possibility of getting revenge. And you know what's beautiful about this is you can't get revenge on what the devil did to you. God can. God can. And there's a parable in Luke where he, the woman comes to him and says, avenge me of my adversary. We know that our adversary is the devil. Avenge me, Lord. And we can't avenge ourselves. God can avenge. Now, sometimes he takes a while to avenge. And we, we as mere men say, how, how can God put up with the things that's going on in this world? Well, he's God, and he's on a timetable, and he has all the attributes he wants us to have. The compassion, the long-suffering, the forbearance, the mercy, the compassion, the willing that people will change and get it before it's too late. God has all these attributes, and he wants us to have them also, but knowing there's a day coming when he will no longer have these things. Because the Bible speaks of a day of wrath. We read it there in verse 6. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with the dead bodies. <laughs> he shall wound the heads over many countries. So in this text, amazing little chapter, there's so many places in the New Testament that refers to this chapter Probably more than any other chapter in the Bible of, of small size like this, seven uh, verses. Now, number one, it, it speaks of the deity of Christ. It's found in verse one. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. This is Jesus who used this verse to prove who he was to the Pharisees. 
Verses 2 and 3 says he's going to rule with a rod of iron, with the rod of his strength over his enemies. And it says that the people of God will be willing in the day of his power to follow him and serve him, and they will behold the glory of the Lord. Number Verse 4 says that he's our priest. After the order of Melchizedek, which is an everlasting priesthood that will never end, never end and never fail, this is Christ. This is speaking of him and him only. So he's our great high priest. The Bible says he saves us to the uttermost. And this verse basically points to and proves the eternality of Jesus Christ. And then you get to verse 5. The Lord at thy right hand, is Jesus always at the right hand of the Father, shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. When's that going to happen? It's going to happen at the battle of Armageddon. It's going to happen at the return of Christ. He says he will strike through kings. Amazing. And it says he's going to judge the heathen, fill the places with the dead bodies. It's unbelievable. And then it says he'll wound their heads over many countries. So I want to speak of what's going on here. Now, this chapter is who Jesus is and what is rightfully his. He's God's son. It plainly says that in this chapter. He's God in the flesh. He's David's son. He's the rightful heir to the throne. He will rule the earth with a rod of iron for a thousand years. He's the only mediator between God and man, and he's the great warrior king of history. Jesus is. What's amazing is none of these things have happened yet, considering the warrior king. So Jesus, who is the Lamb of God and the meek and lowly one, who only fought by using the words of God, that's how he did it. He spoke the word, and that's all it took. There's one day where he's going to do something different. To where the first time he came, he came to destroy the works of the devil. He came to seek and save that which was lost. He came to minister to many. He said, I came to give my life as a ransom for many. He And also a ransom for the sheep. He that never took up the sword one time in his whole life. Well, guess what? One day he's going to take up the sword. He's going to wield the sword. And he's coming from heaven to do it. The Bible says in Isaiah 34, he will have a sword that is bathed in heaven. Something's going to happen in heaven on his way to earth. Uh, he's going to have a fight up there before he ever, ever steps down on this earth. And his sword is bathed. Let me say, Jesus knows how to wield the sword. And he's coming to the earth to claim his own. The Bible says in Matthew 24, he will come as a flash of lightning from the, from the east to the west. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. He will send forth his angels with the sound of a great trumpet. And it will happen so fast and so sudden it's like a thief in the night. And he will come and take his own uh, post-tribulation rapture up to heaven to meet him in the clouds to prepare for this battle that is coming. Matthew 25 speaks of the parable of the ten virgins that are waiting. Only five go. Five get left behind. This is not speaking of a split rapture. This is not even speaking of the church. This is speaking of people who are living on the earth at the time Jesus returns. 
Those who are ready and those who are not. Now, Jesus, the Bible says, when he pulls, this is all found in, in Matthew 24. When he pulls his people out of the earth, it says he'll send his angels to get them to the four corners of the earth. He will take them with him to the clouds. He will take them to Mount, I believe this, he's going to go to Mount Sinai and renew the covenant with Israel that he did once before with Moses. It's going to all happen again. And he's going to come across to the east side of the Jordan River, and he will come up the east side, what, what they call that, the eastern bank of, of Jordan. He'll come across at the Battle of Armageddon right where Joshua did when the people of Israel came across into the Promised Land. Same exact spot, and he will head towards Jerusalem to save his people. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 63. Now, Jesus is going to renew the covenant with his people. Because when he comes to deliver, he's coming to deliver Israel who is on the brink of extermination. And if God didn't save them miraculously, they would all be dead. This is in the tribulation coming soon. God will miraculously save them. The Bible says Satan will be so powerful he'll send forth the flood out of his mouth to destroy all God's people. And God will make the earth open up and swallow these flood of persecution down into the earth and save his people. They are staying in a place called Petra, which is Edom, which the Bible calls it Bozrah. It's a hideout until Jesus comes to save them. And so when you get to Isaiah 63, you see how Jesus will lead this charge. Isaiah 63. This is speaking to him. Verse 1, Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Bozrah? This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength, I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. So where is he coming from? He's coming from Edom. So people are asking, who, who's coming? Who is this that is coming from the south? And the Bible says in, in Joel chapter 2, that the army that follows Jesus on white horses out of heaven, which will be a part of that, the church will be a part of that, it's such a destructive force that it says when they come down the earth and move across the ground, that before it looks like the Garden of Eden and behind it looks like the burning pit of hell. That's what it says. A destructive force. Jesus is at the lead. Why? He's finally taking up the sword. And when he takes up the sword, he will take up the sword to finish the job. This is him speaking. It says in verse 2, Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel? Why, are your, why is your clothes all red? And thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat. You look like you've been treading grapes. The blood of men. The Bible says the blood will be five feet deep. The horse's bridles of this treading of the winepress. Now look what he says in verse 3. I have trodden the winepress alone. And the people that was, uh, that was there, there was none with me. For I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury. Their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments and I will stain all my raiment. He is coming against the enemies of the Lord. And then in verse 4, for the day of vengeance is in my heart. This is God speaking. 
And the year of my redeemed is come. And I looked, and there was none to help, and I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore, mine own arm brought salvation unto me, and my fury, it upheld me. And I will tread down the people in mine anchor and make them drunk in my fury. I will bring down their strength to the earth. This is a prophecy. This is actually the fulfillment of Psalm 110, verse 6 and 7. When Jesus will come and fill the earth with the dead bodies of those that are slain. This is, the Bible calls Jesus a man of war. This is found in Exodus chapter 15. And so you find this amazing story happening. This is before the battle of Armageddon truly ever takes place. Jesus will first save his people down at Petra before he saves Jerusalem. Before they retake the promised land. And it's a miracle. I don't know if you ever thought about this. Jesus will take the exact same course when he returns that the people of Israel did when they came out of Exodus, Egypt, the Exodus wanderings, and come right across. At, uh, what's it called? Gilgal is where they come across the Jordan River in the Gilgal's new beginnings. He's going to do it one more time. It's called the path of the advent. When Jesus comes, he's coming mighty to save what it says. So when he comes up the east side of Jordan, he saved what's left of Israel. Now there's a bunch of people still living in Jerusalem under the rule of the Antichrist. When he comes up the Jordan River on the east side, he will cross where Joshua did and he will descend upon Jerusalem. So as he comes to Jerusalem, the armies of the world will be there waiting to fight against him. Mainly to the north, because there's a big valley that rides up to the north from Jerusalem, up to the, the, right through the heart of Israel. It's called the Valley of Jezreel. You, you've heard the, story, the word Megiddo, which is where the term Armageddon comes from, which is, means the hill of the crowded. They're going to all crowd in there to fight against Jesus. And a battle's going to ensue. But first, he goes to Jerusalem... And they will fight against him. The Bible says in the book of Joel that there are multitudes in this valley of decision, making a decision. Are we going to fight against these aliens from heaven? And they're going to. They're going to. To the point to where it's going to be a bloodbath. That's, nor that's what the world would call it today. Before this happens, when Jesus comes to Jerusalem, it says he stands upon the Mount of Olives where Bethany is. And it's, the whole mountain splits in half from east to west. And there's a huge spring of water that pours out of the middle of this mountain. It starts a whole new canyon. And there's a valley that develops called the Valley of Azal. And all of God's people that are left alive are going to run to the Valley of Azal. That's found in Zechariah chapter 14. We can talk about all this later. But he will, he's doing amazing work. Jesus is doing it all alone. Everything so far, he's done it alone. He saves Jerusalem from the Antichrist. He takes the Antichrist and the false prophet and throws them into the lake of fire. But there's a whole world of people that are following Christ. The Bible says he will send forth his people, the Jews, to fight against and retake the promised land. Just like they did of old in 
and Jeremiah, or not Jeremiah, Joshua. And the sun will stand still one more time. And the Bible says that God will go forth as he did in the day of battle when he fought for Israel once before. And they're going to retake it right. And this, is the, this will be lasting and forever. I think the lake of fire is going to begin at this time. I can tell you what I believe about that at another time. So the Bible says, if you go back, you can look at this later. We're going to run out of time because we really, really need to pray. But Psalm 110 verse 5 and 6 says that he will send forth his armies to destroy many nations. Now these are people. And all the world will be subdued and Christ will be king of the earth and it's all going to happen. Now, here's, here's what I want to say. Amidst the greatest war in history, complete victory, all-out one-sided victory, total subdue, subduing of the enemy, something along the way happens very strange. And I mentioned it earlier. It says that he will stop at the, at the brook and get a drink. And then he'll lift up the head in the way. And I've thought about this a lot. How could this be? Jesus, in the midst of the battle, and most of it's done, but there's still more to do, will stop at the brook, probably the brook Kidron, between uh, Mount of Olives and, and where Jerusalem is. It's where Jesus spent all of his time on, on, in his earthly ministry. He will stop. He will get off his white horse, and he will bend down and get a drink out of this brook. Fresh water, refreshment, a small pause to refresh himself, and like a cool drink of water to lift up his head. It was gonna, it's going to lift his head up. Now think about this. Is it possible that even God can extend himself by the amazing works that he does? Because Jesus is a glorified man at this time, risen from the dead, does God need rest? Did God, when he made the earth in six days and he rested the seventh day, did he need rest? Or did he do it as a principle to show us that we need rest? Did Jesus stop at the brook? We hadn't done it yet, but we'll be behind him and watch. It's going to be amazing. And stops to get this drink of fresh water at the brook in the midst of the battle. Is it to show us that we need to do this? Because God really has need of nothing. He needs nothing of this earth. Is it possible? You think about uh, the, am the amount of energy and power that Jesus has expended. Now, if, if you let your imagination run, there's trillions of angels because there's trillions of stars. One third of them fall, fall and follow the, the devil. Jesus will have to subdue them. That's a lot of subduction, right? Think about it. Just before he ever gets to earth and does what the great deliverance of his people to rid the heavens of evil and to bathe his sword, to tread the winepress that we read in Bozrah and in Petra and save his people and then deliver them and pull and bring them up to Jerusalem with him for a new beginning. 
to come up with what the Bible calls the king's highway. To retake Jerusalem and all of Judea and then all of Israel to defeat all the nations of the world. To make a mountain cleave in half. Think about this. And then he will stop for this cool, refreshing drink of water. If this is the case, what does that say about us? That refreshment is very important. Now, um, here's my lesson tonight. You need to learn how to take a rest and a sila and a refreshment when you need it. You know what the problem is? We're too busy taking them when we don't need them. Isn't it true? <laughs> you know, if when it when it's earned, you know, some people never know what a refreshing drink can really do for you because you're always drinking. Oh, I know people have a bottle of water in their hand almost 24 hours a day and take one to bed. Now, <laughs> I know it's kind of funny, but you know, a person that has fought the battle and suffered. A drink means a lot to them, right? And it's very refreshing, and it will revive, and it will lift your head up and give you the strength to finish the job. Stop and get a drink. Now, that's what it's saying. The Bible calls it a sila. Take a sila time and stop and reflect. In the midst, And this is what's so amazing. In the midst of the war, he does this. And if you've ever done any type of spiritual warfare at all and tried You'll know what I mean. This is all uh, spiritual. You need a spiritual drink because spiritual warfare is very draining on you. It is on me, on my spirit. It affects me down to the very soul. It does. It affects my body. It's very hard on the flesh. The Bible says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness, of this world against spiritual wickedness in high places. So think about this with me. Praying is hard on the flesh. Have you ever tried to pray at length? It's hard. Hard on the body. It's hard on the soul. The mind wants to wonder. Uh, to stay what the Bible calls laboring in prayer, it's hard work to pray. Uh, spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. Studying your Bible and learning the Bible, the Bible calls, says that much study is a weariness of the flesh, hard on the flesh to study. Soul winning and caring for souls and caring about the souls of men is very hard on you. Dealing with evil spirits around you and tackling them, just acknowledging they're there and tackling them is hard on the person doing it. The ministry's draining. Virtue coming out of you is very draining. Giving your heart and soul to something is very draining. Listen to these verses. I have just a few more minutes. John 4, 6 says, Jesus was weary on his journey and sat at the well. Now, here's Jesus. He needs a drink. He needs a rest. It's not because he's a loafer. It's because he's expended himself. Probably because he'd been praying all night the night before. And fasting. And he's in need. Funny in that story, the disciples all go to town to get food. Jesus stays at the well. 
He's got some work to do, right? He knows that the woman at the well is coming, and he's going to win this woman to himself. Mark 5.38 says that Jesus was asleep on a pillow. You know, his life was about ministry, about giving up his life. And I think we need to learn this because Jesus gave his whole life. He gave his uh, sukiel life, which is his soul. He literally poured out his soul for the ministry, for other people. And then his Zoe life, you know, know, some people call their daughter Zoe, don't they? It means your active life. That's what it means, your flesh. Jesus gave his physical strength and exertion for people in the ministry and pleasing the Father, and he also did his very soul. Everything about him was for others and for the Father. Took a toll on him. He needed a resort. That's why he went to Gethsemane a lot. That's why he climbed a mountain and spent a whole night with God. He needed a drink. He needed a Sabbath. So, Think about this. Can you relate to him in any portion of your life where you said, you know, what we do is we, well, this is what we do. I'm, I'm just drained. The fight's so hard on me. I think I'm just going to quit a while. It's too hard. Aren't you glad God doesn't do that? Aren't you glad Jesus never did that? What you're supposed to say is, I'm really drained. I need a seal. I need to get me some refreshment from God quick. Because the job still needs to be done. And learn from the one who taught us all and get yourself spent. And then get refreshed so you can spend some more. Paul said, I'll gladly spend and be spent for you, though the more I love you, the less I be loved. You need a drink. I know. You go down to Sonic and get a big gulp. (laughs) No, they don't. Or a, or a, a slushy. 44 ounces. <laughs> you need a recuperation time. Get a drink from the brook. Take a little rest. Then get back to fighting. It's important. So let me ask you here. Have you uh, ever given your life, your active life, your body, and your soul for others, if you haven't, it's available. You still can. But if you do, you need that rest. You need that rest. Praying for others, caring for others, grieving for others, spending for others, giving for others, serving others. This is the life of Christ. And when you do this, you can enjoy a break. See, if you never do this, you can't enjoy the rest. Isn't it true rest is for those who worked hard? True rest is for those who are spent. You can't enjoy it and appreciate it if you didn't do it. So what we are, we're so tired all day because we've been loafing all day. There you go. Man, I'm so tired. Well, you didn't do anything all day. Therefore, you're worn out. There's a better way to get worn out. Hey, I worked hard today. I'm I'm worn out. I need me a sila. I need to stop. And get a break. This is the life of Christ. Okay, I'll I'll finish with this. I've noticed this sometimes. Not so much because I've done this long. I used to play football or team sports. And I always noticed there was one guy who's always hanging around the water jug. 
But he never worked, never tried hard. Bothered me. He's always hanging out over there like he's dying when he didn't expel himself out on the field. He didn't suffer and, and uh, need it bad. You know, another thing I notice, and nowadays in pro sports even, there's all, every time a guy finishes a play, somebody's sticking a bottle of water in his face every time. I don't understand that either. Man, when I was a kid, they'd say, hey, you'll get you a drink at halftime, buddy. Hey, I need refreshment. I need a sealant. I need Christ to help me during this day. So when you get spent, do what Jesus did. Stop. Get a drink at the brook. Because a drink doesn't mean much if you're never really thirsty. All right? So you do your Bible time, your prayer time, you rest, you be still with him. You reflect. You recharge. You reload. You finish the job. Jesus is going to do that. This is one battle that is going to be completely finished. He's going to rid the world of all God's enemies. And it's going to be an amazing thousand-year reign of Christ. What the Bible calls it, I call it the, the golden age of the earth. It's going to be wonderful. So will you learn, let's learn from this. He shall drink of the brook in the way, therefore shall he lift up the head. It's a major change, and it's wonderful. The worker, the ox, needs a drink, right? You can't have a true relation with Christ if you don't try to give your life a ransom for many and try hard and win some decisive victories. You know, God loves to see a win. He does. Try real hard. You'll get spent. God will be happy. You'll get your drink. Win some decisive battles. You send the enemy into, into retreat a while and do some exploits for God, you're going to still need that drink. But it's going to mean so much more. Oh, icy. There it is. A good icy. Yeah. They mean a lot when you've been suffering all day, right? All right. I told you this one's different. But what I want you to do, I want you to just see that verse. Why is it there? Because it's true. He shall drink of the brook in the way. And we know Jesus has got a lot of, he's doing amazing things all the time. All right. 